0: welcome to the modern art notes podcast i'm tyler green this week k rosen the aldrich contemporary art museum opens k rosen ages for house this weekend it is rosen's first solo museum exhibition in the northeast in almost 20 years somehow it is curated by the aldrich's richard klein the show will be on view through september 4th rosen's text-based works presented as wall drawings paintings and works on paper use language, words, humor, and two-dimensional forms, kind of, to explore ideas, histories, and contemporary life. Her museum exhibitions and installations have included projects at the Aspen Art Museum, the University Art Museum at UC Santa Barbara, the Drawing Center in New York, a two-museum show split between the Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles and the Otis College of Art and Design, MIT's List Visual Arts Center, the MCA Chicago, and on and on. On the second segment, J. Paul Getty Museum curator Annalise Desmas returns to the show to discuss Bouchardon, Royal Artist of the Enlightenment. The exhibition examines the sculpture and drawings of Edme Bouchardon, who worked as the royal artist during the 18th century reign of Louis XV. The exhibition, which Desmas co-curated with Edward Kopp, is on view through April 2nd, and it's a stunner. The show's excellent exhibition catalog was published by the Getty. Amazon offers it for $80. We'll have a link on Manpodcast.com. But first, Kay Rosen, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Ron Muick, an exhibition of major works by the contemporary sculptor. These hauntingly realistic figures showcase the artist's playful use of scale and explore the human condition, the nature of physical existence, and the ambiguity of the unknown. Now on view exclusively at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org muick for more. Get an insider's look at one of your favorite art institutions. The Iris is the Getty's blog, offering an engaging, behind-the-scenes look at art in all its aspects. It's a project of the entire Getty community, written by curators, educators, scientists, guest speakers, and many others. Find out how a Getty curator reunited the head and body of an ancient sculpture and explore rare treasures from our vault. Now you can go behind the scenes at the Getty every day by subscribing to the Iris. To learn more and to subscribe, visit getty.edu/iris. And we're back, Kay Rose, and welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Biographies of you invariably start by mentioning that you studied linguistics in college. I don't know where you studied linguistics or how much you studied linguistics, but everyone seems to think it's important. Do you think it's important?
1: Well, I did. St- I studied languages and linguistics, and I think I'm not sure exactly how to trace my interest in language back to its source, but I think it probably was important in some way. And the way I studied it and you know, studying applied linguistics, which is what I mostly did, you're breaking down language into its little small components. It may be comparing those little structures in English with, say, those in Spanish or French. And it just makes you look really closely at the really small like phonemes, the little pieces of language. And I think maybe it in you know, did affect me, if influenced me. I think, obviously, I was interested in language before that, or I wouldn't have studied languages in the first place, but I think it did, my study of it did influence me.
0: What about studying linguistics and language did you enjoy? What about it fired neurons in your brain?
1: Just about everything. The way it sounded, the way it could be dissected, taken apart, the way it, the cadence and the more poetic qualities of language. And it's funny, I guess, the way it looked, because in the end, it was the way it looked, like visual aspects of language that ended up kind of overpowering the academic parts of it. So I guess, I guess mainly this, the structures and the audio, audio part, the oral part.
0: So that suggests that while you were in college, you were thinking about how language no looked?
1: i wasn't till after i mean i I wasn't till really afterwards i I was thinking more about how it structures and speaking it and and hearing it and then later, I was teaching for a couple of years, and I really was kind of bored and i I thought just passing on this kind of academic information to students really wasn't satisfying me. I realized that the things that I really liked most about it, that I found most interesting came to be the visual things, like what if, you know, in patterns, like what if, you know, it were, a language were arranged in a non-linear way and say stacked or, you know, just arranged differently, organized differently. Different parts of it were visually emphasized or de-emphasized using color or scale or materials, you know, paint, and all of that just came to interest me more, and I thought back to, because I'd always done art in the past, but never formally, and one summer, when I was in college, I was taking a painting class at a local college at Corpus Christi, and my teacher said, you missed the boat. It's a horrible thing to say to someone after they're just about to graduate. And I said, he said, you really should have studied art. Anyway, that kind of came back to haunt me later. And that's when I decided, like, yeah, I'm doing the wrong thing.
0: So what were these visual manifestations of language you were seeing that got you thinking this way?
1: Gosh, this is so long ago. We're talking, like, 50 years ago. Oh, gosh, I can't even remember, but but you know I did my master's thesis on Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights. So you can see that there was some kind of a transition going on and it was sort of a hybrid and of language and art. So I think I was already morphing and then when I when I got my after I got my masters and I taught for 2 years and and then I don't know I'm not sure that it was during my study of languages that the visual neurons started firing. I think it was after some kind of dissatisfaction and boredom set in, and I s- turned to art, to doing it via art, that they started firing. So it was sort of post-academia that it happened, I believe. And I guess what pushed me into art from there was, well, the things I explained, you know, just...
0: So is there a, is there a first... Artwork is there an artwork you you count as your first work? I think the earliest work of yours I know of dates to oh
1: yeah way way it goes before that. I would say there's one that goes to that we used in the show at L.A. MoCA um, from 1969. And when I did start doing art, it was immediately I, I started using language. So it was sort of you know somehow I was you know my brain was still on that track except it was painted. I think I was a little bit influenced by some of the artists that were in the collection of the Art Institute then, in the mid-60s, like Larry Rivers. They had a large painting of his called "Lions on the Dreyfus Fund. I don't know if you remember that. And others that, you know, other artists that were using language. And, you know, somehow, I mean, basically, while I I took a few classes at the Art Institute sort of as a non-degree student, but basically... I just started at square one and sort of educated myself.
0: I mean, I could ask art history questions of almost any artist whose work I love forever. So I'm limiting myself to five here. The first one's a stab in the dark. You mentioned the the Larry Rivers painting um, at the Art Institute, which is kind of his his riff on, on Rauschenberg's Rebus. Was the relationship between text and image in paintings, paintings that weren't necessarily only text, Something that generally caught your eye? I mean, one of the things I kind of thought of in an abstract way was the relationship between text and image in in Mexican casta paintings and how there's a very direct reference there that's both kind of historical, like a lot of your work references, both history of the present, history of the past. I don't know, was that one of the things you, you, is that the kind of thing you were interested in?
1: The Larry Rivers, I remember that. I remember Rauschenberg. I was excited about taking the courses that I did at the Art Institute. They were just basic courses like color and 2D design and things like that. I, you know, I I can't remember art historical references that impacted my thinking that much. I was kind of excited about everything, you know, from Albers to, I don't know, just about anybody. Because it was also new to me. It was a different world. It was a new world for me.
0: One of your contemporaries, see, well, two of your contemporaries seem like pretty likely interests of yours. One, one is Ed Ruscha. His, his text paintings, especially when he plays with material, so to speak, and words, have they been important to
1: you? Uh, no. I love I love Ed Ruscha's work, but I can't say. And I know people try to make those connections, but honestly, I really wasn't even. I really wasn't even that aware of them at, in the '60s or, you know, even early '70s. And it's funny because, after painting language for and working with language, up until about the mid '70s, I did something completely different for about six years after that, which was just sculpture and photography, and then kind of morphed back into language in like the late. The early 80s and during that time that especially the later 70s and early 80s my influences were more minimal minimalist performers like dancers like Lucinda Childs and Trisha Brown and especially Steve Reich and it's funny but those the kind of systems generated in their work were what really really interested me
0: Ah, systems more than the movement mm-hmm.
1: yeah but the movement were based. The movements were based on the system. So, you know, I, I also loved the kind of synchronicity that occurred in their works from time to time, like in the, you know, the recordings of of Steve Reich. Like Soon it's going to rain. You know, that would start off and then through the mechanical apparatus of two different recorders would get out of sync and then basically come back into sync whenever. Whenever they did, that was sort of the end of the piece, and, and 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 those two dancers I mentioned sort of did the same thing. And I think there are like pattern. I I I think those kinds of patterns, things where part passages where text comes together, these sort of coincidental events happen in language. Somehow, I felt a connection. To those performers
0: the word coincidence especially. Yeah, yeah yeah
1: coincidence is important
0: your work basks in accidental discovery made possible by coincidence might be one way to put it
1: so i i've made a big leap from 1969 to like 1980 <clears throat> late 70s so but i it is kind of a blur and it's sort of a uh a trial period for me, very experimental, uh, trying out different things. And, but I think those are the things that come, that come through the strongest are, are the systems, language, before I kind of made a brief departure from it, and then trying different techniques. Sculpture using wood, photography, paint.
0: A couple more art historical stabs. E.E. E. Cummings? Not so much an art historical stab, maybe a po- po- poetic. Yeah, stab, no, but, you know, <laughs> love
1: him. <laughs> and I can't say there was an influence, but I think when I would when I'd read him, it was like, oh yeah, you know, I agree.
0: I, I this this next one might be just because I have Francis Picabia on the brain, thanks to MoMA. But there's lots of word play and typographical freedom in Dada. Did you look at any of that? Do you, do you still look at any of that? Uh,
1: yeah, I love that Donna show at MoMA recently and actually when I was when I was in college, even though I never took any art studio courses, I did take some art history courses and dot I wrote a big paper on Donna.
0: So I'm glad you brought up sculpture because I I one of the things that interests me in your work is how quite often you build forms that are more like sculptural form than, than painted or drawn form. And I'm thinking of works such as 2012's Sundress and Sandals and Bacon Club Pancakes and Syrup, works made up of a series of overlapping letters. Are those, am I, am I thinking of those the right way? Are those kind of engagements with forms? Yeah, yeah, they,
1: they definitely are. But I, I really think that a lot of the work is, and because the, you know, I think of the letters as sort of like bodies, or you know, these sculptural components in a word or phrase, and so you know, they're kind—they can be shifted around and, and organized and built on, and to, in the same way that sculpture can. So those that you mentioned, I am really, really fond of those, and it was just—it was actually also a, a more abstract way of working with language. Instead of having it so literal, <clears throat> by finding a phrase that or a word that had that began and ended with the same letter, it made it sort of an object, like this finite, this sort of finite object that wasn't open-ended because it was enclosed like a circuit. And so, and those were done in several different ways. Some of them were transparent, where you could see the lines of the other letters, you know, in the layers. Some were opaque so they you could just see the silhouette and some were layered so you you could see little parts of it peeking out other letters peeking out like i think sundress and sandals was one of the completely opaque ones where you just saw the silhouette and the bacon club bacon club pancakes and syrup uh that was more like a sandwich where you could see you could see the you know other parts sandwiched in between
0: yeah, you're tempted to find them.
1: You're you're challenged. To yeah, for like little bits of green and red, you know, like lettuce, and tomato. <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it, but
0: on the left hand side of of that work, there is a, um, a big, bright pattern. Yeah, of red
1: I know. I chose I chose, maybe two, maybe I chose the colors for that reason.
0: <laughs> Are there text? works that you think of as being sculptural because of how you got to the final image, perhaps, that a viewer might not think of as sculptural?
1: I think of so, much, so many of them as sculptural. And so, I mean, just about any one of them, I could tell you probably why it's sculptural. Generally, it's I think it's just what I mentioned, that the I think of the components, because I think of them as objects and something to be seen as well as read. And when they work the best is when the meaning, what you read, and what you see sort of become one thing. And maybe that's where the coincidence occurs, or one, one, one kind of coincidence. For example, what do you have up there? Let's see, blurred? I mean, that's just kind of a well-known example, but it's you know, I it's just all these little parts that you know, kind of go to make up these, this object. And coincidentally, you know, the blue and the red and the R, the kind of leftover R, do sort of act out what the word means. So there's this kind of confluence of meaning and appearance.
0: Blurred's an interesting case because that's a work that you have installed um, or allowed to be installed, or whatever the right phrase is, on everything from billboards in Ohio, um, as in this past summer and fall, and that you've installed indoors on two perpendicular walls. How important is it to the work, and, and and maybe especially to that idea that it's related to sculpture, to install it on perpendicular walls?
1: Oh, I think it's that's ideal, and I prefer that because the perpendicular walls meet in the corner and the piece suggests a kind of meeting point where the red and the blue come together.
0: So let me, let me interrupt really quickly in, in, in blurred. The B L U is in blue. The R E D is in red and the R is purple. We'll have images on manpodcast.com of Yes.
1: Course. So, so where the blue and the red meet, if you, if they meet in a corner where the two perpendicular walls meet, I mean, that's ideal. It's sort of an arc, another layer of support for the work. So you have this architectural support, which reinforces the you know what the work is about. It's fine. I mean, the billboards were fine. I didn't object to it at all. But you know, given my preferences, that's how it'll be installed: is on two perpendicular walls.
0: I, I have two other sculptural or works that strike me as particularly sculptural. One of them is "Kiss on the Cheek," from twenty twelve. Red on the left hand side, kind of a, a pale peach color. Flesh color on the right. It strikes me as a work. I don't want to say unrelated to the rest of your practice because that always comes out as an insult. But it, it 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 seems to diverge, and I I wonder if it is a particular engagement with with sculpture, maybe Brancouche, maybe.
1: Well. It really doesn't diverge. It's it's part of the the works that you just mentioned, like the bacon bacon club pancakes. Yeah, it is. And the
0: yeah, all about the same. Yeah. Here, yeah.
1: So there is sort of an anthropomorphic quality about it, where the posture of the texts sort of looks like one is giving the other a kiss on the cheek. That's the red and the, you know, flesh colored, like Caucasian flesh color. So that's, but it really doesn't diverge. It just acts out. I mean, I think a lot of the word work acts out what it is, what it means. And so I don't really feel like it does diverge. I mean, I think
0: mayhem acts out like that.
1: Mayhem does. Yeah.
0: From 2012, mayhem is almost kind of invites the viewer to look for the letters in a way that one looks for objects in a cubist painting.
1: Right. And that's one of the examples way. of that series where there's complete transparency and you get, you get to see all of the the lines that form the letters beneath all the layers. And what that is, And so it does really look like it looks mayhem-ish.
0: So I've grouped Parts of um, your practice together in in, in in little things to discuss and and uh, perhaps obviously the last one was works that emphasize forms rather than individual words. The next group I'd like to talk about is a group that I think or that read to me as expressing a certain interest in in landscape, maybe even in the American landscape tradition. So I'm thinking of works such as um, Seascape from 2008 which features the words sky, fog, sea, and constructed landscape winter from just a couple, oh, I guess more than a couple, 2013, which features, again, we'll have images of these on manpodcast.com, but the piece references the words river and valley. Have there been points at which you wanted to make works that were about landscape?
1: You know, I just sort of feel like, it, it, There's, I think of the work as sort of like found work, it starts less with my intentionality like what i want to do rather than what crosses you know my path that jumps out at me and suggests that it has some potential to mine it for you know to to for other readings and other associations than one would just normally see when one reads a, you know, a a word or phrase. So I don't say like, oh, I think I want to do landscape. It just, uh, you know, something will happen. I'll see something or I'll be thinking in a certain way that those, you know, that something about landscape will just appeal to me or, you know, I'll, I'll just see the potential in it. And, you know, I think my brain, and this is probably true with everybody, is sort of prepared in a way. It's sort of like, you know, getting the ground prepared after a crop, (laughs) you know, where it's sort of ready to accept something. And I think that maybe I'm in that sort of kind of sensitive position where something will register that I just connect to.
0: Would you have objection to historians coming along sometime in the future and finding quite a number of references to in your work and thinking there was a thread there?
1: Oh, not at all. Oh, no, no, not at all.
0: So not intentional, but certainly in the soup. Yes. I mean, you actually, you even use the word mining to describe your practice there. And mining is very much an American landscape. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right yes.
1: Uh, no, I would love it. I'm trying to think of other landscape works. Uh, well, there was just something about that word valley in that constructed landscape winter, you know, that you could build on the valley with the H-I so that you had this sort of bump, you know, a hill, and then you could, you know, have the river sort of run beside it, utilizing other letters, and uh, through the valley, And then kind of a byproduct of that, which I didn't even really realize, and a lot of times there are these accidents that happen, which I'm really excited about when they do, but they're not part of the initial process, is that HIV right in the middle. And other people have pointed that out to me, and I don't think that's a dominant, I mean, it looks dominant because it's central to the piece, but conceptually I don't feel like it's dominant, but I think it's interesting that it's there.
0: I think it's interesting that it's there for a lot of reasons, including um, the obvious reference to to AIDS and HIV. But I also when I see that work, I think of the way that as American agriculture expanded out of the rivers and valleys of the northeast, that. Um, and, and and became industrial in in the Midwest and then in the Far West. That the people who took agriculture out of the Northeast often had to build apiaries. They had to create hives, H I V, and then the E and the E is right below. Yeah! The
1: v. Oh, how great! Oh, I mean, I find I love lots that. of things in that piece. <laughs> oh, see, that's so great. I really get some of my my most interesting uh, most interesting associations from other people.
0: So I'm glad to hear there's as much landscape as I think there is, because I really love those pieces. My guest is Kay Rosen. We'll be right back after a break. The critically acclaimed major exhibition, Francis Picabia, Our Heads Around So Our Thoughts Can Change Direction, is now in its final weeks at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. It closes March 19th. This comprehensive survey is the first in the U.S. to chart the artist's entire career. New York Magazine calls it, quote, a blast of fresh air just when we need it. The New York Times agrees, saying, quote, the show has a propulsive, joyous energy. Visit MoMA.org for more information and tickets and plan your visit today. The Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington, D.C. presents Yayoi Kusama Infinity Mirrors, the first exhibition to explore the evolution of the legendary artist's iconic installations. Featuring an unprecedented six of her dazzling environments, Infinity Mirrors is the most significant North American tour of her work in nearly two decades, opening February 23rd and on view at the Hirshhorn through May 14th. Visit Hershorn.si.edu for more. And now back to my conversation with Kay Rosen. The, another grouping I had is architecture. I think there's a lot of work that references architecture and interiors, both of which, you know, for both of which there's there's a long art historical tradition. I'm thinking of works like Also Pull Up a Chair from 2007. Are you, are you thinking about recreating a space with words? Yes. So there's a real spatial... Yes,
1: element. absolutely. Yeah.
0: So it's kind of a traditional painterly engagement with space only in a very, very up-to-date way.
1: Yeah, it is. And then I don't know if you saw the works that are called the rooms paintings. They were from around 2001. It's a series of works that they're sort of like lists uh, of maybe four or five words that have to do with interiors, like sofa, chair, table, and they're arranged in a way so that their the same letter components are are aligned vertically, but they sort of create a space because of the way the rest of the words sort of spill over into the space i am probably not doing a very good e- job of of explaining them but i they are I think they're on my web I think they're on my website I'm not sure.
0: Oh, I do know them. I do know them. Uh, room series is also on paper. Uh, shelf, shelf yeah, is more uh-huh. right. right shelf.
1: Yeah, yeah, like self help shelf. Yeah. So I think there's been like this thread that's gone through the work about that. So those are from 2001, but pull up a chair was what was that? 2011? Seven? Okay. So anyway, but they it 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 does keep recurring.
0: I know you said that you don't sit down and try to make a work about a thing like landscape. But the works that engage architecture, such as H's for House, which is a new piece, um, or these works we're talking about, shelf or, or pull up a chair, seem like you'd almost have to be thinking about starting with space or architecture.
1: Maybe. I, I know the rooms one started... <laughs> after my father died his his wife locked my sister and die and me out of our apartment out of his apartment and we couldn't go in this is in Corpus Christi and I could we couldn't go in to get any papers or anything and we had our lawyer go in and he said could you please draw only have a short time that I can go in there could you draw me an architectural plan of his of the apartment so I'll know where everything is immediately so I made this, like, intensive, meticulous drawing from memory of the apartment. And <laughs> and after that, I don't know, there was just something about the—that made a huge impression on me. And that's when I started doing the rooms paintings and after that. So I don't know if I was—it I, could have been just like an emotional hangover, you know?
0: Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I, that doesn't seem like an emotional hangover. That seems like intellectual— way out of a situation and in into in using it as fuel for extremely clever, engaging <laughs> work.
1: <laughs> yeah, possibly. So, I, and I can't remember how pull up a chair came to be, you know, whether I was thinking like, oh, I want to do an interior or, you know, whether it was something that just came to me. I had done a painting in, let's see, I can't remember when that was. You won't see it anywhere because I really don't show it, but it was called Pull Up a Chair, and it was just table and chair. It was just a painting, two white letters, table and chair on a blue background, and and the A from chair and the A from table kind of touched. And I was thinking of that of the chair, you know, pulling up to the table at that point where they sort of became one thing. And uh, so it was a little odd. You know, it wasn't centered, like, Chair wasn't centered under table because it was kind of off because ta- the A is the second letter of table, but it's the third letter of chair. so it you know it was slightly unaligned. And, uh, and that was maybe in the 90s, yeah, so have just been these kind of occurrences throughout the years. And I guess the print pull up the cha- up chair was just a more elaborate version of that.
0: Well, you know, I have been, and, and, and I, I, I know I've been doing this, and I know this is probably bad of me, but I have been, as we've been talking about these works and with the ones we're going to talk about, been kind of readily mixing prints with wall installations, with drawings and, and, and various things on paper. Do you, I, I, hierarchy isn't the word I want to use, but to you, is there a material difference between something that you do on a wall and something that you make on paper?
1: Well, on paper or paint I get involved and in, I actually love the act of drawing and painting. It's so important to me just to sit there and paint or draw. The just the physical act of it. The the wall paintings are more conceptual but, you know, because I don't do them myself, I have a sign painter make them. But I see what was your question about being involved?
0: Well, do you think that there's, you know, do you think that As critics and historians and other artists think about the works, is the support, whether it's a wall or a piece of paper, primary?
1: Yes, it is. I think there are some things that images that are appropriate for a wall but not for a painting, like Blurred, will not be a painting. It has been a drawing, but more like a study, but it I can't see it in a small version as sort of an object, a painting object. Some things will be paintings, but not wall paintings because they're intended to be more intimate or about a small word slash object, but not about a large message or a large something that uh, implies, you know, something more epic or something that's architectural. And then drawings are even more intimate, and honestly, I think I have more leeway with drawings because they are not just something in, that are made for themselves, but they're also i think of them as studies for something larger so I think the range the conceptual or potential range of a drawing is probably the greatest i think there I think I would do more in drawings than I think paintings and wall paintings are more have their kind of limitations. And prints as well.
0: Let me let me try to expand upon that idea by asking about a specific work, and that is a work called High, H I from 97, 98, 99. And it is the letters A B C D E F G H I, A through G are in white, H I are kind of a yellowish gold and all of the letters are on a blue background. So is one of the reasons that you think that piece works, I mean, I think it works for lots of reasons, but is one of the things that's important to you that it be painted on a large wall so that the body, that the eyes have to work all their way across 10 letters or whatever the number is until you get to boom,
1: hi. Yeah, yeah. Also, I just think it's kind of a public message and probably why it's been done on billboards before too. It's, I just can't see that small, On a painting. I mean, it was done as a print, but I mean, I think that's okay.
0: I mean, an IOU from two thousand seven, which is S I O U X Sue spelled out with IOU in different colors in the middle, feels like something that needs to be human scaled because that makes it somehow in its intimacy more confrontational. Yes,
1: I think so. Although, now we just redid that as a a gallery, and I redid that as a as a letterpress print just about two weeks ago, because the Standing Rock Sioux issue has just been so important to me. So that's gonna be part of something coming up. But I also I proposed it as a as a billboard for a certain site, but I don't wanna say where because it probably won't happen. But but I could see that large and, and in a way, at the time I first conceived it, it was like well in two thousand seven it was, you know, something obviously that it was part of our history. In 2016, it was something that was very current and very urgent. And now, in 2017, since it's sort of looks like it's over and done with, I think it'll be more elegiac if if that is accomplished. So I think that has a uh, there's a lot to be attached to that. You've
0: made a lot of work about what might be called contemporary uh, American life. Blurred is is a great example given our um, post Tim Russertian tendency to refer to red and blue states.
1: Although that one wasn't actually, it's funny. I mean, it came about in 2004 at the time of the Kerry Bush campaign, but I actually, and I guess some way it did, it made me think think of it that way, but I also thought of it as just any two sides coming together. I don't think it necessarily has to be about ha- politics.
0: Have European curators wanted to show that work? Yes. People without kind of the American red-blue stick? Yeah, calendar?
1: they have. It's been shown in Berlin, and, and it's in the collection of a museum in Sydney, Australia.
0: One of the things I'm really interested in in, your, in works of yours that I would describe as Addressing Contemporary American Life is how cleverly, thoughtfully confrontational they can be in a way that encourages the viewer to put something together rather than simply be presented with it. I'm thinking of, for example, Star Spangled Banner Yet Wave at the Whitney, which was installed on the outside of the Marcel Breuer building in 2000, or a piece called Various Strata from 96, 98, 99, which people will know is the work that consists of three uh, words, more or less, sort of, on top of each other. Him, h i m, h then on the next line, H-Y-M-M, and then on the third line, H-M-M-M. Hmm. Do you think about how you want the viewer to progress through pieces such as these? Because all these are all works that require thought that may change from the top to the bottom, almost literally from the top to the bottom.
1: It's like, you know, it's sort of a hands-off policy. It's, I mean, once it's out there, I don't have a lot of control over how people read it or process it.
0: No, but you could make it hoping that they go through it in a certain way.
1: Right. But... How could I have made any of the uh, either of those two different?
0: Well, I'm not saying I, I don't mean to suggest that you would make them differently. I mean, I, I just wonder if it's built into your intent that the viewer goes through a progression before reaching. Well, the like thing.
1: in various strata. I was it, there is a hierarchy. So the big hymn, you know, the deity or the whatever the authoritative figure, or whoever is at the top. And then the hymn is sort of the pan to the hymn. And it's also, you know, about, of course, males. <laughs> it's about gender. And then the bottom one is, you know, about doubt. So there is sort of a, a progression that has to progress that way from top to bottom, a hierarchy. And Banner Yet Wave, uh, that actually follows the tune, the melody of Banner Yet Wave. So it's bad. So it rises and then it falls. And it was just sort of fortunate that it fit on the the facade of the Whitney (laughs) so well.
0: (laughs) But it does seem to me that a lot of these works that engage with contemporary America have built into them. Take the work, I Have a Memory of a Dream, 2011 to 1963, a 2011 work that I think was last installed in Roanoke, Virginia, at the Taubman It is a work that requires someone seeing it to, you know, shift from first gear mentally to second gear to third gear to fourth gear before there is an image or an idea before them. You know, it's anti-retinal, to use the Duchampian phrase. That it seems to me might be more evident, you know, or that I wonder if, 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 if you think of as being more evident than in a work like like IOU where it's more immediate, where it acts faster on the viewer. It
1: definitely happens and and I do worry about those situations where you know the information is less filled out, like I have a memory of a dream. It sort of has to be pieced together by the viewer and often in conjunction with the title. And it worries me. <laughs> but, you know, that's just, sort of way, that's just sort of the way it is. Some of them are less, a little less accessible. And I try to make them as accessible. I mean, I do think keep the viewer in mind. And I do try to, you know, meet them sort of halfway at least. But, you know, sometimes it's just not possible without, I mean, without, you know, destroying the integrity of the work.
0: We've been talking, as, as no doubt you, you talk a lot, about works with text uh, that, that are primarily text-based. You've done works that are not, such as On Top of Old Smoky, Olive Grove, Red Maple, Nomad's Trail, Buffalo Grass, On Top of Great Smoky Mountain, which was in a show at the Drawing Center um, about 15 years ago. It's, it's a work that I like because I really like the Southern Appalachians and the Smokies, but also— <laughs> Well,
1: that's a good example of a, of a landscape work. Yeah.
0: And, and it's also a good example of a work that foregrounds color in a way that's maybe not in all your work. I mean, there's color in, uh, you know, 90 percent of your work, but it provides an opportunity to ask you how you get to color and how you, how kind of where in the hierarchy of thinking about what a work is going to be color
1: fits. Sometimes color is just an integral part of the work, like blurred. You just can't, like, divorce it. There was a little painting called Still Life, which says Fruit Dish. And, you know, it's red letters that say Fruit Dish on a yellow background. And and that sort of had to be red. It didn't have to be a yellow background, but it felt like it should be. Because the eyes. I mean, they're all capital letters except for the eyes, which are lowercase and have these little red dots over them, like little red cherries. And uh, so some things just, you know, require color and specific colors. And, you know, sometimes there, it's a little more arbitrary, but I usually try to, it's, it's important to me to have the color sort of, you know, insert itself into the work. I kind of demand to be a certain color that it's sort of required. And so it's, it's, it's important.
0: I have a couple staccato questions, questions that don't really fit any of my artificially created categories. One of them is about the work John Wilkes Booth from 1987. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. I don't want to give it away by trying to read it in text because you really have to see it. Is that a history painting? Is that like a, 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 an intentional engagement with a certain tradition?
1: Well, it actually is about, it started out, one of the one of the things behind it uh, was trying it was the use of margins to create the works and sort of determine how the how the words would be split up so it's sort of it's about that first and foremost space and of course the margins then you know force the language force the words to do what they do so that it's about that and of course The history part of it, I mean, you just can't disentangle that from it, right? its It means so much more as that than if it said something else, (laughs) something, you know, just generic. So I love
0: it. So it is is fair to think of it. Oh, yeah.
1: I do sort of like the idea. This is just incidentally, but since the margins are so important, I sort of like the idea of the villain in that scenario having you know crept around the margins to or creeped around the margins to do what he did you know the aisles and the back doors i
0: I have two questions on things that aren't in the work there's no punctuation why not uh
1: in all the work you mean
0: there i i there's if, if, if there's punctuation in any of the work it's only one Yeah,
1: <laughs> no, there isn't much punctuation. Well, there's one word that could, that's just punctuation <laughs> between you, me, and the lamp. There is, there between uni is. Between you, and the yeah. lamp post.
0: That's the only one I could think of, yeah.
1: I don't know. I guess it just didn't fit in.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm, it's harder to riff on punctuation than it yeah, is on letters. Yeah,
1: it is. I mean, I'm sure if there was a reason for punctuation, I would have included it, but maybe it was just, you know, incidental and not, relevant to what I was doing.
0: Could it be that you found in developing works that if a work needs punctuation, it's not tight enough?
1: Uh, Visually, you mean?
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Or conceptually, Uh for that matter.
1: That's possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the, the texts often form these units that maybe punctuation would, you know, create some kind of separation or gap that would prevent that from happening. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. There were, I mean, there are hyphens in the Ed paintings. Stuttered Ed. Because that's the whole point of those is to, well, it's to make, it's the two Eds or the past participle suffix, suffix of verbs. And then there's the character Ed. So that whole series, the hyphen is really important.
0: Another thing that's almost never in the work is your name. You've spent... 30 years playing with words and artists have going back to the 16th or 17th century had great fun f- with finding ways to use their names as words within their compositions signed on a letter held by a portrait sitter or whatever have you consciously avoided playing with no using that, your name there is or? one
1: if you see have you seen that one jack drawing it's if i f you C, S-E-E-K, if you see K.
0: Oh, yes, that one. That's the only that's the only that's the only one. It's from 1998. Yeah. The only other one that even comes close is you did a project for the Aspen Art Museum, which had had like a copyright with your name. <laughs> <laughs> or something. Yeah. You know, so I'm not counting. Oh, right. that. But yes, that's the, the one you the, the the one you reference is, is the right. one I was thinking of. Yeah. I
1: wonder if I ever did anything with Yak. You know, that's my name backwards. And I know I've had it around in my notebooks for years, and I can't remember if I've ever used it. But you know, kayak or yak yak, or which is my name backwards. But I don't, i just can't remember right now. If I did another one with my name, that would be it. Yak yak.
0: <laughs> so you've sort of thought—you've sort of thought about it, but not. Quite I don't think there
1: so. I can't discussion. remember.
0: Well, Kay Rosen, this has been a ton of fun, and thanks so much. for Well, thank with you me.
1: so much. I've really, really enjoyed it.
0: Support for The Man podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Medardo Rosso Experiments in Light and Form, on view now through May 2017. Instrumental in expanding the definition of sculpture for the modern era, Italian artist Medardo Rosso employed innovative casting and modeling techniques in plaster, bronze, and wax, creating surfaces that were sensitive to the transient effects of light and shadow. As seen through nearly 100 works, including sculptures, drawings, and photographs, most of which have never been exhibited outside of Europe. This exhibition explores Rosso's varied efforts to understand, capture, and manipulate light in his art. For more information, visit PulitzerArts.org. Often referred to as America's jewel box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velázquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit kimballart.org for more information. Welcome back. Next up, J. Paul Getty Museum curator Annalise Desmas. She's here to talk about Bouchardon, Royal Artist of the Enlightenment, a fantastic exhibition of the sculpture and drawings of Edme Bouchardon, who worked as a royal artist during the reign of Louis the Fifteenth. Annalise Desmas, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello. I don't think Bouchardon is the best-known artist of the eighteenth century, not even among historians. So, how did you come to him?
2: Oh, <laughs> well, it. He's not a well-known artist now, but he was really a very famous artist in his time. So it's actually a long story, but he's always been a very important artist to each of the curators who worked on the exhibition. Edouard Kopp did his dissertation on Bouchardon as a draftsman at the Courtauld Institute. Guillaume Scherf, is the curator for sculptures at the Louvre, did major acquisitions of Bouchardon uh, artworks for the Louvre. Juliette Tre, the drawings curator at the Louvre, um, was working on cataloguing the nearly 800 drawings by Bouchardon kept in the Louvre. And uh, myself, I did my um, PhD on the sculptors in Rome in the first half of the 18th century, and Bouchardon was one of the stars in Rome in the years uh, 1720, 1730. So for the four of us, he's always been a very important artist, let's say, and we wanted to share his artworks and his creativity with as many people as we, <laughs> we would love to. So where
0: does Bouchardon fit within the French and Roman 18th centuries? Who were who his peer group? You know, in the context of whom and what should we think of him?
2: So Bouchardon uh, arrives in Rome in 1723. Actually, he was trained in Paris, but initially trained in Burgundy and Champagne, two very important regions of France, thanks to his father, because his father was an architect and a sculptor. And very soon he noticed that his son has uh, very important skills. And so uh, Bouchardon's father uh, supported the studies of his son and sent him to Paris to study where he won uh, the competition of the Academy of uh, Painting and Sculpture. And thanks to this award, uh, he was granted a sojourn at the French Academy in Rome to perfect his training. And so when he arrives, it's a very important moment for the history of the French Academy in Rome, because it's when the Academy transfers from a very, you know, kind of, Old palace, not uh, not well situated in the in the city of Rome, to a very important building, Palazzo Mancini, in the heart of the city, really on the uh, Via del Corso, which is the most important street in uh, in Rome. So it's really a moment in which the French Academy in Rome wants to uh, really show off all the the artistic. Uh, achievements of France by furnishing this academy with the most important tapestries or pieces of furniture. The reign of uh, Louis XIV and the very beginning of the reign of uh, Louis XV have produced to show the Romans and uh, everyone in the eternal city that France was really the best in terms of art. And of course, showing off through very uh, skilled artists. And uh, among them was Edme Bouchardon. So
0: when Bouchardon arrives in Rome, he's about 25 years old. Is he ready to, to start making fairly significant work right away, or does it take a little while?
2: He's ready right away. I think it's like nearly three months after his arrival, the director of the academy had, that was usually uh, the director of the French academy in Rome, had to send regular reports to uh, his boss, his superior in uh, Versailles. And so we have actually a very important source for us art historians, the correspondence of all the directors uh, of the French Academy in Rome with the Versailles administration. And thanks to that, we could see in some of the letters that uh, Poisson, the director at the time, wrote that right away he's caught by surprise by the skills of Edme Bouchardon as a draftsman. It was kind of mandatory for the artists arriving in Rome as pensionnaires fellows of the French Academy, to uh, study after the ancient art and after the great masters of Renaissance and beginning of the 17th uh, century. So Bouchardon, in a way, was doing something normal, just drawing after all these uh, art pieces he would discover in Rome. But right away, really, uh, Puyerson acknowledged the high skills that Bouchardon has as a draftsman and praises his art various in Versailles. And also, right away, Bouchardon really wants to do a statue for the king that was something that had been established since uh, the creation of the French Academy in Rome. Each sculptor sent to Rome on the expenses of the king uh, would have had to carve in marble a statue after an ancient model. This uh, tradition, actually, you can see that quite clearly when you visit Versailles, because most of the statues in the Park of Versailles are actually copies that the pensionnaires, the fellows in the French Academy in Rome, did during their sojourn and sent uh, to uh, to the king. And now they are used as a decoration in the Park of Versailles. When Bouchardon was in Rome, very early we know that thanks, thanks to a letter to his father... He's explaining that he's worried a little bit because he's not sure that actually Poisson and then Vlegels the will make him do a statue in marble for the, for the king. So he's really very happy once it's decided that he would carve the barbarian phone. And very early on, as soon as he does the model of this classical statue, uh, many cardinals in the city of Rome already see that he's a very skilled artist.
0: That rather perfectly sets up the first gallery of the show, which is, you know, really one of the most striking galleries of an exhibition I can think of in recent years. Running down the middle of of the gallery are a series of Bouchardon portrait busts. Are there one or two that you think most summarize Bouchardon's Roman Roman learning and and his own achievement and, and quality, if you will?
2: Yes, for sure. Although I love all of them, so it's always hard for me to, <laughs> to select only a few. But of course, uh, you know, one has to mention the bust of Philippe von Starch, because it's really the first you know, portrait in marble that Bouchardon does. And it's a truly very important bust for many reasons, because of its style and, and how uh, new this kind of bust was at the time. Philip Van Storch is actually a very interesting, intriguing figure of the 1720s in Rome because he was actually a spy checking on the pretender to the throne, James Stuart, a Catholic king. So um, Philip Van Storch was employed by the British crown to check whether this pre- Pretender to the throne uh, would try to get the throne of England uh, back, <laughs> and Philip and such could do this uh, spying activity under the cover of all his studies as a kind of archaeology scholar of the ancient world, studying the inscriptions in Greek and in Latin on all the carvings you would find in Rome and so on. So he was really a very important uh, figure in 18th century, Rome, publishing actually on also the uh, ancient uh, world. And Stosch was so passionate about the ancient world that he used to ask artists, to depict him in the ancient style. So we have actually examples of uh, paintings by other artists, not by Beauchardon, but by other artists, uh, depicting him as a philosopher in a toga, for instance, or he would ask uh, to have medals done of his portrait as if he was a caesar <clears throat> on these medals or ivory medallions. So with Bouchardon, what he does is that very soon he notices that Bouchardon was able to draw after ancient statues in an astonishing uh, quality. So he was, let's say, he foresaw that Bouchardon uh, was so able to really, let's say, digest ancient art in such a way that he would be able to create a bust of him. In an ancient style. So he asked Bouchardon to depict him following the model of a very important bust at the time, which was in the collection of Cardinal Albani, one of the most important collectors in Rome at the time. A bust that depicted Emperor Trajan. We chose Trajan uh, in bare chest, just with a drapery on the on the shoulder. And, uh, of course, with uh, all the hair in a natural way, as the ancients uh, would do, with no, not, much clothes on, not many clothes on and no artificial way of uh, having the hair done. And Bouchardon did really a masterpiece because, sure, he tried to be very faithful to his ancient model he was given, the Best of Trajan and you can see that through uh, the toga uh, on the uh, on the shoulder and there is a very nice detail actually on the clip that uh, fixes the drapery on the shoulder you can see a, a little animal an owl which was uh, the symbol that von Stosch had chosen the owl is the owl of Minerva the goddess of wisdom the Chest of Stoche is nearly you know completely uh, naked, but Bouchardon was not only faithful to his ancient model but also very faithful to nature and that's really a characteristic for Bouchardon's art all along his career. Uh, and you can see actually under the armpit of Philippe von Stosch a little bit of you know fat skin because this man was a little bit fat. So no way Bouchardon would idealize his his model, you know. Same thing. Look at the face. You know the the, the nose is quite large, uh, not very elegant. You know it's a big nose. Well, Bouchardon uh, sticked to <laughs> to his model. Didn't try to embellish the face of Stosch. Same thing for you know the little wrinkles uh, next to the uh, the eyes. It's really, you know, something that Bouchardon did in all his portraits, really trying to be to be close to the model he was uh, depicting without any kind of uh, idealization. And same thing for he- the hair. You can see that Stoche is not wearing a wig, while at the time many uh, of the best, uh, or should even painted portraits, would have showed their models in, uh, you know, very rich clothes, and also with, uh, you know, a, a wig on the head of a, of a sitter. So Bouchardon does really create something truly new, because based on an ancient model, he creates this kind of bust, but if you wish, we are in 1727, you will not see a bust of this kind, besides the other bust that Bouchardon uh, did, before, let's say, uh, you know, the end of the 18th century, which is the style that then we, will, we would call neoclassicism, but that's you know, after the 1750s, after we've discovered aculinum and so on, so Bouchardon is really ahead of his time for this kind of portrait. I would say
0: we'll have images both of uh, the Bouchardon and also the second-century Roman bust of Trajan on manpodcast.com. Uh, one other marble bust worth bringing up is three months after Clement the Twelfth rises to the papacy, Bouchardon is sent to make a portrait of him. It seems to me uh not an eighteenth century expert like a pretty terrific thing where does where does where does that bust rank in bouchardon's roster of achievements if you will?
2: well you're right This bust is truly a masterpiece and uh, but the reason why we put it you know at the very uh, end of that gallery as if you would have you know to as in a uh, a labyrinth through one bust to another, and you finish by the Pope, also, you know, the most important person in that, in that room in terms of hierarchy. So, this bust of the Pope is truly uh, a masterpiece. And it shows also um, the diversity of Bouchardon's art, because in this portrait, forget about the ancient style I was uh, mentioning with the bust of uh, Philippe van Stoch. Here we are. In a completely different mood i would say and in these busts you can really see that bouchardon studied very closely during his sojourn in rome the art of Gian lorenzo bernini the greatest master of baroque art bouchardon did many drawings after bernini's artworks in saint peters all over uh, the city of rome he would discover bernini's artwork and would study them so closely that sometimes you know for one tomb bouchardon would do more than one drawings Really studying each detail. For one statue uh, of a fountain, he would turn around and draw at least three drawings from three different viewpoints. So really, he's he's been studying a lot. Bernini was caught by the the you know the, the strength of Bernini's artworks, and we have even something very compelling for precisely the art of portraiture in Bernini's career. Bouchardon did study one of the most striking portraits that Bernini did, the bust of Cardinal Scipione Borghese, to such an extent that these drawings by Bouchardon, which are kept uh, at the Louvre, shows do show the bust from two uh, different viewpoints, from the face and from the profile. And Bouchardon was so uh, intrigued by that bust that he, is, he also mentioned on his drawings all the dimensions, you know, of the head, of the circle, the distance between the nose, the ear, all these kind of dimensions are noted down on these drawings. And we have also the memoirs of Président Charles de Brosse, a very important French a state who visited Rome. And when he was in Rome, he went to the Villa Borghese with Bouchardon. And uh, in his memoirs, he reports that uh, Bouchardon showed him the bust of Cardinal Scipio Borghese, insisted on the fact that the lips were so well carved that actually it looked like the bust of Scipione Borghese was speaking, was alive. And it's more or less what you can see also in the bust of Pope Clement XII, because you can see really the, the, the work, the way in which Bouchardon animated and created a dynamism, which is quite compelling, on the, uh, the vestment of the, uh, of the Pope, it's really close to what he had done on the best, that Bernini had done on the best of Scipione uh, Borghese. And there is anyway something which is more Bouchardon's style than Bervini's style because all the time Bouchardon is able to study any kind of art he would see in Rome, but then he integrates that into his own art and then of course put his own mark on, on his artworks. And what you can see on that fantastic bust is of course already Bouchardon's excellent skills in carving marble. There is uh, such differentiation of textures on uh, on this vest between you know the very shiny part of the of the vestment the instead the embroidered uh, part in the middle of the bust showing the coat of arms of the uh, corsini family the double keys of saint peters all these kind of uh, representations which are really truly uh, amazing and look at also the color at the very uh, you know just under the neck the how thin this uh, part of the of the marble piece is is quite uh, astonishing and once again Same kind of comments uh, I've already done with uh, the bust of stosh, look at the face. Really a face that shows an elderly man. Pope Clement XII was quite old when he was elected. 78 years old, I think. Yeah, exactly. You can see, you know, the aging skin under the chin, all the wrinkles, and also this kind of absence in the expression of the face. Well, that's not a failure from Bouchardon's depiction, not at all. It's just that this Pope was nearly fully blind at the moment in which he was already elected. So this kind of absence, more or less, if you wish, just represents the fact that uh, the Pope was blind and not able to express anything through his eyes because he wasn't able to to see. So it's quite touching to, uh, you know, realize the quality of this burst in terms of, yeah, baroque dynamism of the vestments, the very high concentration that Bouchardon had on uh, depicting the the face in a very faithful uh, way, and also all the background stories. Can you imagine, you know, a very young French artist, French, I mean, a French artist, a scholar at the French Academy, got uh, the commission of the very first bust ever carved of this newly elected Pope. It's so incredible. We have a letter from uh, Edme Bouchardon to his father, explaining uh, one of the, um, what happened during one of the sittings. You know, of course, Bouchardon, the young sculptor, didn't dare addressing the Pope directly, and so he would, uh, you know, speak to the cardinal nephew, Neri Corsini, but then the Pope actually answered to Bouchardon in French, because, uh, you know, the French language in the 18th century was... <laughs> quite well spoken in, uh, in Europe, and of course, popes and cardinals, uh, highly educated people would speak more than one language. And so the Pope answers back to Bouchardon in French, telling him that he should address him uh, directly, and he shouldn't kneel in front of him, the Pope should kneel in front of this uh, great uh, artist. So it's quite touching how how Bouchardon really also realized that uh, that was quite an unusual and an exceptional commission he got when he did that that bust. And you have to imagine that this bust, of course, was noticed in Rome, because the director of the French Academy, who always, always wanted to uh, to insist on the fact that French artists were better than uh, Italian artists. There was this kind of war between Italy and France to understand who got the better, the best position in terms of arts, uh, of course. Um, the director of the Academy, the painter Nicolas Vlegues, did, you know, did so that everyone who would come to the French Academy would see the clay model that was then uh, fired. So then. Became a terracotta uh, model, so everyone in Rome and you know what was easy because actually the French Academy was on this most important street with an important collection of casts of ancient sculptures. So there were many visitors coming to the French Academy, and everyone could see the bust of the, of a pope. So really, it it was a big deal for uh, all the French people in uh, in Rome.
0: We've been talking about the sculptures. The show is chock full of dozens of scores of drawings. I think you mentioned that the Louvre has 800 of them, in fact. What did Bouchardon's peers or contemporary observers think of his skill as a draftsman?
2: Everyone agreed that he was a fantastic uh, draftsman, truly. And uh, to such an extent that uh, actually his drawings were also, let's say, diffused through uh, another kind of art practice, which is printmaking. And uh, printmakers did prints in the red shock manner to be able to uh, sell to private collectors these prints that looked like red sharks. Because Bouchardon usually wanted to keep his own drawings. That's the reason why uh, we have so many at the Louvre, because actually, Bouchardon, there are three different, three important facts to know. Bouchardon did draw a lot. Second, he drew beautifully. Third, he tended to keep his drawing in his own atelier. But meaning that then, at his death, all the drawings went to his hairs and then at the end of the 19th century, his hairs gave the drawings to the Louvre. So all these factors, let's say, helped uh, you know, us studying the art of Bouchardon, and, and that's the reason why we have so many uh, of these uh, drawings being uh, conserved. Usually, collectors would really buy these kind of you know uh, prints in the red-shock manor to be able to have artworks by, by Bouchardon. And he was... Such an important draftsman that he also so he produced drawings as part of his own working process. You know, studying for instance when he would do a statue, and we have examples in the uh, exhibition. For instance, the male figures featuring the seasons in the niches of the Grenelle Fontaine in Paris. These depictions of young men carrying something that would uh, you know, qualify it as a, as a season, so flowers for spring, for instance, and with uh, one zodiacal sign next to them. For these statues, Bouchardon, in his working process, asked a model to pose naked in front of him in the position he had already imagined. So uh, Bouchardon would be able to study very well the, the, his composition and the position of the, of the body. But then of course he would keep you know his drawings in his own studio, but printmakers would produce prints in the red shock manner, but could then then be acquired by, by collectors. So that's one kind of drawing. Then you have other kind of drawings. Bouchardon was really an inventor producing all the time with uh, he had really a very productive imagination. So he would, of course, uh, you know, draw out of his imagination uh, compositions even before getting some commissions. And this is perhaps well represented through drawings of fountains, for instance. Then he had a mandatory task as a draftsman of the inscriptions, sorry, as a draftsman of the Academy of Inscriptions and Lettres, he had to produce drawings preparatory to the medals to be coined every year for the Royal Mint, and of course, he, he you know he had this uh, position uh, very important as draftsman of his uh, academy because he was a very important uh, and uh, skilled draftsman, and he would also be asked to uh, give drawings for for title pages. So uh, he he created many drawings that would then be turned into prints to be the title pages of very important books. And uh, in the exhibition, for instance, you have the important uh, volume by uh, Buffon on the uh, natural history. The title page was made in print after a drawing by Bouchardon. And I could give you uh, many examples. And he would also produce some drawings for series of prints that would be uh, sold as bound volumes or would be sold as loose uh, prints. And we have a fantastic example with one of the most famous series of prints after Bouchardon drawings, The Cries of Paris, for instance.
0: It's a great show. I hope people uh, get a chance to see it in Los Angeles before it closes in early April. Annalise Desma, thanks so much for chatting with me.
2: Thank you so much.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth.